As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. I'm a little bit curious. How many of us have ever left on a trip with teenagers or young adults in charge? Maybe it was with a sitter for just a few hours. Uh, perhaps it was for a few days. Maybe it was dropping Junior off for a week of camp. Or when you took your baby and left her in the dorm. Have you ever left with teenagers or young adults in charge of the situation? If you did, what were your final words of advice? And this is audience participation, so I'm going to stand here until somebody tells me something. 
When you left your children in the charge of teenagers or young adults, what was your last bit of advice? Behave yourself. Is that the sitter or the children? <laughs> Remember whose kids you are. Yeah. Okay. Any other bit of advice you left? <laughs> it's a good thing he married well. You know, going back to your blessings. See, no matter what words you left, those words were likely either meant to inspire confidence, remember whose kids you are, or things will be okay, or else to set a goal. Behave yourself. Or remember, you're here for a purpose. Usually when we part, we set expectation. And part of setting expectation is to impart the confidence that I believe that you can do what I'm asking you to do. Similarly, before Jesus left, Luke records a scene where Jesus offers parting words to the disciples. Words that are meant to inspire and also set a goal for them to press toward. Now, Acts chapter 1, verse 3 says that these events took 40 days. But here they are described as one scene in just 17 verses. And some of you are a little bit concerned about the film that we just saw because it showed the wind blowing and it showed the tongues of fire, which didn't happen till after Jesus had left. So, yes, they took um, artistic license and it was not an accurate portrayal. But Luke here takes 40 days worth of events and he summarizes, these are the things that I want you to remember as I leave. And these just may be the type of words that you and I need to hear today. Because as I look at these words, I see that Jesus builds confidence in his disciples. The New Bible Commentary summarizes this section as the physical person and the proof of his presence. So if you like P's, it's physical presence and proof of his presence. Or physical person, proof of his presence. And Jesus shows that he is there physically, and he offers them proof so that they would have confidence moving forward. Jesus makes it very clear that his resurrection was real and it was bodily. It wasn't just a spirit resurrection. It wasn't just the appearance of a ghost. For he, he says, um, Jesus uh, assures them that he is not an example of a ghost. But he says, I am an example of a bodily presence. Because he invited them to touch and to watch him as he tasted. Well, I, I guess sometimes seeing and even touching is not believing. And so he offered, him the offered them the proof of eating in their presence. Craig Keener has said, angels did not eat earthly food. 
because spirits had no need for food. And so by taking of the fish, Jesus is proving he wasn't just a spirit. He was the bodily present person who was placed in the tomb. I notice here that Jesus says, look at the scars. That there were scars present on Jesus' perfect, glorified, resurrected body. Therefore, it's important for us to remember that scars are not always imperfections. Notice that Jesus does not draw attention to the scars on his face from the crown of thorns and from the beatings. He does not draw attention to his back from his scourging or to his side as he did with Thomas that was pierced to prove that he was already completely dead. He doesn't show his face, his back, or his side. Jesus says, look at these scars, the scars in my hand and in my feet. Because those scars indicated the means of his death. He was beaten in his face. He was scourged on his back. After he was dead, a spear was plunged to his side. But the means of his death was crucifixion. The scars in his hands and his feet. So I was thinking this week about scars, about deformities. And and, and I actually found throughout Scripture that oftentimes what we would consider something deformed is actually a messenger and a sign of God's blessing. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 15, God placed a mark on Cain so that wherever Cain went, everybody could look at Cain and say, he's under God's protection. I'm not going to mess with him. And so whatever the mark was, it was a sign of God's protection wherever Cain went. Genesis chapter 32, verse 25. After Jacob had wrestled with the Lord, the Lord left him with a limp. And I don't know if it was a painful limp. But it was a reminder that every step he took was a reminder that he had met with God personally. That God is not just a ghost, he's not just an imagination, he's not just a dream. But every step that Jacob took the rest of his life was a reminder that God is real. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, we read that Paul had something that is called a thorn in the flesh. Now, Paul actually describes it as a messenger of Satan, but it also says that while I asked God to take this away from me, God allowed this messenger of Satan to remain. Why? Because it continually told me that his grace is sufficient. In my weaknesses, his strength becomes powerful. How many of us need a reminder that when we become weak, He remains powerful? How many of us need that reminder that although we get discouraged by the ache, the pain, the scar, the mark, the limp, every time we take a painful step, it's a reminder that God is able. 
that God's grace is perfected in our weakness. I was reading this week in my devotions in John chapter 9, verse 3, about a man born blind. And when this man was blind, everybody says, well, who sinned? Did he sin or did his parents sin? Somebody had to have sinned or else blindness would not be here. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. God allowed, permitted, caused this man to be blind. Why? So that the glory of God may be revealed. And so while scars in the hands and the feet of Jesus would not be attractive, they communicate the blessing that comes from God. There are currently two different songs in the rotation of Christian radio. And I realize that Christian songs are not Scripture. I realize that they are not infallible, that they are not sources of divine truth. But songs kind of stir us emotionally so that we remember things that we would otherwise forget. And one of the songs that is currently playing on Christian radio claims, I'm thankful for the scars. Because without them, I wouldn't know your heart. That the scars remind me that God is compassionate. And then the other song that's currently in rotation says, The only scars in heaven are on the hands that hold you now. I don't know about his facial scars. I don't know about his back scars. I don't know about his foot scars. I don't know about his side scars. According to the song, the only scars are in the hands. So, maybe scars are only useful on earth to remind us and encourage us of this part of the journey. All I know, and I do know this, that the Bible says scars and maladies can point us to that which is good. A man was born blind so that God's glory could shine. Jesus' hands remained scarred so that the disciples would be encouraged that because he lives, we can live also. Because he was resurrected, we can be resurrected also. And that there was a continuity in the resurrected body of Christ with the body that was laid in the tomb. Because this makes it very clear that Jesus was real and that his resurrection was bodily. But it goes on to say in verses 44 and 45 that his death was planned and purposeful. It's not something that just happened to him. It was intentional and it was planned and he participated willingly in the plan. It goes on to say in verse 44 that um, repeats what was said earlier in 31, that both the law, the prophets, and the writings, all three sections of the Hebrew Scripture, attest to the crucifixion that was about to happen. And verse 45 that reflects verse 32 says that these same scriptures, they had read them before, they had studied them before, they had even memorized these Old Testament scriptures. But when Jesus explained them, they came alive. 
When Jesus explained what they had already read, all of a sudden, in in verse 32, their hearts burned within them. And here in verse 45, he opened up. So there's a new appreciation for the Old Testament truths that they had already studied. Craig Keener writes that although the Gospels report Jesus' disagreement with his contemporaries on many issues, every stratum of Gospel tradition reports his appeal to the Old Testament to define his mission. Jesus did not just appear out of nowhere. Jesus came in the midst of a plan that was already at work. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the people were impressed in Luke chapter 4 by the graciousness of his words. And in Luke 4, 32 and 36, they were impressed with the authority with which Jesus taught. And here we are at the end of his ministry, and his teaching still has these inspiring characteristics. When we allow the spirit that comes from God to instruct us, the words come alive within us. Now, I notice here in verse 46 that both Jesus' suffering and his resurrection are two sides of the same coin. They're two acts of the same play. They are two chapters of the same story. We cannot have one without the other because one does not make sense without the other. That he would suffer and that he would rise. I considered the way that we reflect and we remember crosses. The one on your left is often referred to as a three-bar cross. The one in the middle is called a crucifix. And the one on the right would be called an unadorned cross. And I thought about the historic tradition of all of these. And these differences can be non-threatening way that we can begin conversations with our neighbors and with our friends from different faith traditions. Most Roman crosses have a body affixed to the cross in the center. And it comes from the Latin words crucifixus, one affixed to the cross. Most orthodox crosses have a footplate that is tipped to the right, which indicates that one criminal found favor while the other one perished. And most Protestant, as well as military crosses, are unadorned, indicating that Jesus is no longer affixed to the cross. And without saying that one is better than the other, we can start conversations with people of other faith traditions by saying, do you know the difference between the crosses? Why do you think some churches have three bars and other churches have two bars or one bar, one cross bar? Why do some churches have Christ on the cross and other churches not? It can just be a conversation that we can open up with others. And without saying that one cross is better than the other, because actually even within Lutheran churches, 
In Lutheran denominations, the Lutheran churches in Europe are usually crucifixes. The Lutheran churches in America are usually unadorned. So even within that one denominational tradition, there are differences. But simply asking if someone knows the three meanings can begin a conversation. Now, around here, you will only find unadorned crosses. Because we choose to emphasize that Christ is not dead, but he has risen. Amen? And because he has risen, because he is not still affixed to the cross, we too rise to a new manner of life. We die to self, but we rise to Christ. <coughs> because the reality of Christ's bodily resurrection is meant to give confidence to those who are about to spread his message. Speaking of spreading his message, the next verse goes on to say that Jesus bestows commission on the disciples. He first built confidence, and now he bestows commission. Again, the New Bible Commentary summarizes this section as preaching and power, which is our commission. When I look at verses 47 and 48, I see that the experiences that the disciples had equipped them to spread the message. And we have been equipped by our experiences. Until I had suffered, I could not identify with others who suffer. Until I had gone through the cancer journey with my wife, I could not understand the cancer journey that many of you have been through. And I realize each journey is different. I'm not trying to say that I know your pain. But my experiences allow me to identify with you so that I can tell you of God's hope. See, we are equipped by our experiences, but we are equipped for a purpose. Jesus did not suffer and rise again simply so that we would be nice to each other. The goal of a church is not simply to fill the seats or to balance the budget. The goal of preaching is to proclaim, as we see here in front of us, repentance for the forgiveness of sins in His name. That's the goal of our preaching. Not just to make people nice to each other, but, there, but that there would be repentance so that there would be forgiveness. The parameters of preaching begin here. For them, here was Jerusalem. But it goes on to say, in my words, the mission is not complete until it reaches everyone, everywhere. And the gospel here says that they must proclaim this to all peoples. David Powell writes, To all nations, beginning in Jerusalem, formulates Jesus' final commission to the disciples of this gospel. This statement, to all nations, should be read in light of Jesus' final commission in the book of Acts. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
Because that text, to the ends of the earth, alludes back to Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. And Isaiah wrote, I will give you, Yahweh's servant, as a light to the nations, so that my salvation may reach where? To the ends of the earth. 400 years before Christ ever stepped foot on our planet, Isaiah says, God's gospel is to the ends of the earth. As a matter of fact, the gospel for the Gentiles was not a new idea in the book of Acts. It had been prophesied by Isaiah. It was promised in Yahweh's covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And it was even predicted in Genesis chapter 3 verse 20 where Eve is identified as the mother of all living. It's not that the Old Testament is a Jewish gospel and the New Testament is a Christian gospel. The gospel of God started in the garden and it was told over and over again. This isn't just for the Jewish people. It's for all the nations. And the method of our preaching is that we testify of these things. What are the these things that we testify about? We are to testify about the suffering and the resurrection of verse 46. And the repentance and the forgiveness of verse 47. If our God talks don't include the suffering, death, and the resurrection and repentance and forgiveness of sins, we come up short. The tagline that shapes my ministry is my goal to make disciples of all in Chase County. My goal is not to get them to become members of our church, while that would be nice. My goal is not to get people to simply say the sinner's prayer. My goal is that every man, woman, and child in the boundaries of our county would become like Jesus. And when we become like Jesus, we have our eyes on the spiritual harvest of all nations. There's a quote that is often attributed to Francis of Assisi. But that quote actually cannot be found in any of his writings. The quote is, Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Francis never said that. And this is often used to communicate that kindness and respect are more important than the details of Christ crucified and risen for sin. The problem with that premise is that the gospel cannot be proclaimed without words. Kindness, respect, grace, and mercy can be communicated without words, but those qualities are not the gospel. There are many kind people who will spend eternity in hell. There are respectful people who are currently under God's wrath. You know people who extend grace to others, who will be damned to perdition apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. 
We are to witness to these things. Suffering, risen, repentance, forgiveness. And the Holy Spirit enables us to tell that message. You've heard me tell that we need to demonstrate the love of God and we need to proclaim the gospel of Christ. And that we do to everyone, everywhere, starting here. And the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers this. The gospel commission that we tell those four things to all nations will not be complete based solely upon our personalities or our efforts. The Father had promised in the upper room discourse that he would send another of the same kind as Jesus. Another comforter to come alongside the disciples. And Jesus promises here that when this comforter comes alongside, the disciples would be clothed with power from on high. You know, we, we don't need either the creativity of new methods nor the familiarity of old-time religion. If we are going to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins in His name to all nations, we need Holy Ghost power. His power from on high is the only factor that will change hearts in us and those to whom we witness. See, the confidence that Jesus instilled with His presence and the commission that He gave, we have received, uh, or it, and the commission that we have received leads to a beautiful outcome where blessing both flows and returns. New Bible Commentary says this section is about the parting blessing. The first thing I see is that Jesus blesses the disciples. Jesus' final blessing brings joy because it's rooted in the promise of God and His indwelling presence through the power of the Holy Spirit. And because God keeps His promises and because God is about to send another comforter, they were blessed with joy. Jesus demonstrated in verse 39 that he was not a spirit, but he promised that a spirit is on the way who will comfort and empower. And it is that spirit who indwells us to accomplish the purpose of God in our community. Jesus blessed them through the promise, but also they returned the blessing to God. When I read verses 52 and 53 in my devotions a few weeks ago, I couldn't believe that the disciples would actually go back to the very temple that was run by those who had crucified Jesus. I thought, boy, there's a strong message. And the fact about our need to find ways to fellowship with others who may not do who may not dot their theological I's or cross their theological T's the same way that we do. Do we look for excuses to break fellowship or do we seek to build bridges whenever possible? Even if we may be maligned or mistreated, do we seek to build peace? 
That's what I thought the message was, that the disciples went back to Jerusalem, to the very temple run by the very ones who crucified Christ. Then I read a commentary that pointed out Luke's gospel began in the temple, and Luke's gospel ends in the temple. That this is a literary frame that says God has been doing a work, and although God started the work at creation, we come to a point in the temple, Zechariah joins in to what God is already doing. And here at the end of Luke 24, we see they're in the temple because God's work is about to continue. And God's work is continuing here in Chase County in 2022. In Acts, Luke's second volume, he describes how God empowers the disciples to, so that the message of this gospel could spread And the temple blessing, Zechariah blessed God in the temple, the disciples blessed God in the temple, is simply a literary frame to Jesus' story within the bigger narrative of God's work among humanity. And the good thing is, is that God's work continues, and we should be marked by the same worship of God, the joy that God keeps His promises, and the continuous blessing of God. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for the fact that you use us to continue your purpose. God provides encouragement, equipping, and energy for any task that He assigns. My friend, God will never set you up to fail. And if God calls you to testify to your neighbors, He will accomplish that. He will encourage you, He will equip you, and He will give you the energy to do what He calls you to do. And God has sent us on a mission. A mission that begins here and reaches to everyone, everywhere. As Jean comes to the piano, we're going to sing one final song this morning. The song tells that we have a story to tell to the nations. I invite you to stand with me as we sing together. <laughs>